how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 426, where I spoke with Dana Stevens, a film critic for Slate and the author of Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. In this interview, we discussed the work of Buster Keaton, how the industry has changed for film critics, the letters she received from Roger Ebert at an early age, why you need to see as many movies as you can, and some industry secrets for finding your voice today as a film critic. This is a special interview associated with my first documentary, Daredevil Society, a series about the history of stunt performers, including everyone from Buster Keaton to Jackie Chan to Zoe Bell to Keanu Reeves. Learn more or become an investor at daredevilsociety.com slash docuseries. You can also find that link in the description. And I mean, if we're going to get really, you know, superhero comic about the origin story, I remember specifically being about seven years old and thinking that I wanted to be a writer without really knowing what that meant exactly. But having this moment that I sort of realized that that books were something that people created, <laughs> that they didn't just blossom out of library bookshelves, but, you know, came from somebody's hand and having a sense that that was what I wanted to do. And I think that's probably true of a lot of people who grew up to write. Um, but of course, that took different forms as I grew up, you know, not knowing whether that would be journalism or, you know, trying to go into academia at one point, um, getting a PhD, and then eventually sort of drifting into into film criticism sideways. So I guess that would be the origin story. But all that said, it took a long time to get to the point of writing a book or even conceiving of that as something that I could or wanted to do. What do you try to do with some of your shorter pieces? I mean, I would imagine it's more than maybe just giving an opinion. Like, what do you see as kind of the the hidden iceberg effect of your themes that you maybe center around with some of the writing you do in articles? Well, I mean, I'm a film critic. So basically, my, I feel like my job really is to... It has it has two sides. It's 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 a consumer report, right? On the most basic level, like I'm I'm helping people sort through the fire hose of of content that's coming at them and decide which movies are worth seeing. But if that was all I was doing, I think I would get burned out on it really fast, right? I mean, there also has to be a side, even to just weekly film criticism, that is largely aimed at a kind of you know consumer market. There has to be a place for your own creative voice to come out, you know, and to feel like this isn't just um, me rating a film and giving a thumbs up or thumbs down. This is me intellectually engaging with this piece of work to the, to the greatest extent I can. So my goal, both with film criticism, I would say on, on Slate and with the book is to write something that's interesting, whether or not you're seeing the movies at hand, right? And uh, that's always a nice compliment. I love when somebody will tell me, oh, I read your reviews even when I know I'm not gonna see the movies. Uh, hopefully reading my book on Buster Keaton, you would want to see the movies. And I, I would imagine that if you care enough about Keaton to read an entire book about him, you would also either know his films or be curious about getting to know them. Were there other like critics you kind of looked at early on in your career? Did you? I'm sure you read a lot of Pauline Kael, but did, do you also have kind of your favorites? Do you root for like she did? Do you like Ebert was kind of famously like he would judge a surfer movie based on other surfer movies as opposed to Citizen Kane or something like that? What do you kind of see your pocket in some of that inspirations? 
I mean, Ebert, actually, that goes back to the origin story question you asked a minute ago. Ebert is someone who, and I wrote about this on Slate after, after he died, who I wrote a fan letter to when I was about 12 years old or so. And he wrote me back, uh, as he did to many other people. I mean, I, you realized after he was gone how many people's careers Ebert helped to foster, you know, um, both as adults and as kids. He was an incredibly generous and encouraging critic. But yeah, I grew up watching Siskel and Ebert at the movies. I love that show and I preferred Ebert of the two of them, I think precisely because, as you say, he championed genre movies and he had this real love for kind of pulp and trash, you know, along with more more highbrow movies. But, um, you know, he wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the screenplay. He always had this side of, of championing um, the trash and that appealed to me. Anyway, I remember just, I must have written him a letter. I, I don't have a copy of what I wrote him, obviously, but I do have the note, the hand typed note, you know, that he wrote back to me that was very encouraging that essentially said, I had asked him, you know, how do I become a film critic? And, uh, and his advice was great advice for any form of writing, which is just write all you can, you know, get on your school newspaper, see all the movies, good and bad that you can, which is, is great advice. Mm. Um, so yeah, I guess he would be an early influence. Um, I still read and am awed by lots of contemporary critics now. Um, I was a little bit sad to read that Tony Scott, A.O. Scott, who is probably my favorite working film critic, is moving from film coverage to book coverage at the New York mm -hmm. Times, but he'll be great on, on both sides. And he does come from a literary background, so I think that suits him well. Um, but yeah, there's so many people out there writing good film criticism. There's such a volume right now because of how much more accessible yeah. criticism is, you know, with the internet, that there is both much more good and much more bad film criticism than, than there was when I was growing up. It's just all around us. Is it still like a, it seems like in the last 10 years, I feel like 10 years ago, there was a couple movies came every week. Now it feels like way more, like 10 times more movies come out. Do you kind of feel that as well? Do you feel like you need to see everything? I mean, first of all, there's no way to see everything. Even if I was one of those completest kind of critics, which I'm not because I also want to have a family life and write other books and do things besides see new movies, like see old movies. Uh, but no, you're right. The content is completely, completely unmanageable now. And this is a real problem for every film critic I know is just deciding what's worth focusing on. What do people want to read about? You know, which movies are going to have any legs or be available for people to see? Where are the movies happening? You know, are they streaming only? Are they on some kind of new service that we now have to subscribe to on top of all the other ones? Just just a couple of years ago, you know, my job was pretty clear cut. It would be pretty obvious looking at the next week's movies. Oh, well, here's the big blockbuster. We'll cover that. And here's an interesting little indie and we'll cover that too. And they're both opening in theaters on a Friday and we'll see how they do at the box office, right? There was a schedule and a calendar. It was predictable. And now everything is coming from all sides. Nobody knows how the industry is going to shake down in the future. So it's a real struggle to kind of figure out where film criticism is right now. And in a way, to tell you the truth, that was part of the impetus to write the book is that I felt around 2015 when I started to get the idea for that Keaton book. I just felt kind of burned out on being indentured to the movie calendar, as it were, right? I mean, because Sony feels like releasing this movie this week, that's what I have to write about. I think I just had a moment of thinking, well, is that the whole horizon of my life as a writer? You know, just waiting to see what movie is released and, and responding to it. And it was, it was a real, it was a great break and a great challenge to dive deeper into film history and to have to, you know, come up with my own, um, list of movies to write about that wasn't being decided by whatever releases were on the calendar that week. So you kind of talked a little bit there. I'll, I'll do an intro as well, but the, the book is called cameraman Buster Keaton, the dawn of cinema and the invention of the 20th century. 
Tell me a little bit more about um, some of your preconceived notions going into this book and any things that might have changed as you start to do the research into Vaudeville and Buster Keaton and everything else. Yeah, I mean, that subtitle, the subtitle was not my invention. It was the publisher's. And I thought it was a little, when they came up with it, right? Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. I thought it sounded too long and too pretentious. (laughs) But to tell you the truth, it does kind of accurately summarize what the book is at least trying to do, which maybe means that I'm pretentious. But yeah, the idea (laughs) of of connecting Keaton's life, his biography and his, you know, filmography with history in a larger sense during his lifespan, that's really the idea that the book came out of. And it it really was born just simply as many, many books are, I'm sure, out of an obsession with the material and a sense that the book that I wanted to read on him didn't quite exist yet. So maybe I was going to have to write it. You know, at that point, I had sort of read all the major biographies of Keaton and seen all his you know, his films, his self-directed films, you know, his his silent films, which doesn't take that long. You know, you could watch every film he ever made in the silent era within a week. Um, and and I, I always felt like the scope wasn't wide enough. I wanted to understand more about, you know, the, the specifics of where he came from and the historical conditions that kind of gave rise to this unique figure in film history. And And that's how the conception of the book came along. So the idea of the invention of the 20th century is sort of a double meaning, like the camera is the invention of the 20th century, the motion picture camera. Um, But I also see Keaton's life and his um, trajectory in in film as kind of an act of invention, you know, that he was inventing modernity. And his films really bear that out, I think, when you watch them. I mean, they're they're all about contending with technology, you know, and uh, and they're just modern in ways that I don't think Keaton was aware of. He was not setting out to make a commentary on modernity. He 100 percent was not. He just wanted to make people laugh and did not conceive of himself as a as an artist in that larger sense, the way Chaplin, for example, completely did. Um, but but his films are nonetheless responding to modernity. And so that was sort of what I wanted to do was was trace the 20th century through his lifespan. And and his lifespan actually is an important set of dates here um, in terms of the book. He was born in 1895 and he died in 1966. So he died at age 70. It's not an incredibly long life. But if you think about how the world changed and how, how entertainment and technology and, you know, social relations and politics and everything changed between 1895 and 1966. It's two completely different worlds. And so I wanted to kind of trace his journey from, from the very end of the 19th century to pretty well three quarters of the way through the 20th. Did he begin successful? I think he started with Baldville and then went to silent films. Was he always kind of a hit? Did he later develop the kind of stone face character and that took off? Or what was some of the early like acceptance of him? Well, that was some of the stuff that I discovered uh, in in research and that made the especially the research about the vaudeville part of his life so much fun because, of course, those performances don't survive. They were never recorded on film. And uh, so I was just driven by this huge curiosity of what his his family act was like, because he grew up in vaudeville doing a family act. The Three Keatons was the name of the act. And for most of his childhood, it was him and his his parents, his mother and father. For a while, his siblings were incorporated too, and it was called the Five Keatons. But as it turned out, his two younger siblings were not the kind of slapstick prodigies that their older brother was. So they ended up going to boarding school and not being in the act. Um, and I was just so curious to to try to imagine and reconstruct what that act had been like, because 
uh, in answer to your question, he was a huge hit as a child entertainer. I mean, to the point that he really lifted his parents out of poverty. You know, his mm -hmm. parents, when he was born, were these struggling vaudevillians whose act was not very good or very popular and who were not getting booked. And uh, then they wind up having this son and at first just dragging him on the road with him because he's their baby and their life is on the road. But then when he's about five, it seems, seems to be when he had just turned five that he first professionally performed with them. He comes up on stage with them and is such a natural at getting laughs and at doing stunts and at you know figuring out these crazy physical slapstick routines with his father that they almost immediately, and my book traces this, within about six months, it seems like, they go from barely getting work to being one of the top acts on the vaudeville circuit. So yeah, he was a remarkable success at making people laugh from about age five until age 70 when he died. And, uh, and of course, during that time, there were lots of changes in the film industry and in his career and ups and downs. But I wanted to kind of correct the common narrative that he had this glorious period in the jazz age and then sort of became a drunk and went downhill and disappeared. I mean, it is absolutely true that he became a drunk for a, a period of years and had a really, really dark time in the mid 30s. But he actually had a very long life in entertainment after that in television and in the circus and on the live stage and um, in all kinds of places. So I wanted to to trace that whole trajectory. I mean, it would appear like you can watch one of his movies now and um, I imagine they're just as funny as they were back then. I think something about physical comedy kind of carries on. Um, what's your, was it like inevitable that it had to be physical comedy because of it was silent films? Uh, what's some of your take on that and kind of what led to his success as a silent film actor? I mean, he's, he, I think he's just, was always an, an artist who expressed himself through physical motion rather than through words. Right. And then once he got behind a camera, he also expressed himself cinematically. And to me, without any comparison was the greatest director of the, of the big, you know, physical comedians of the, the silent era. I mean, Chaplin is an outstanding performer and personality, and it's completely understandable why he took the world by storm the way he did. He was much, much more famous and successful on that level than Keaton was. But as a as a film director, I don't think that he distinguishes himself in the same way, you know, yeah. the, and that's part of the mystery of Keaton that I try to solve in the book and never quite do because maybe no one ever can. But he just has a um, a way of communicating with audiences that's so direct. And I saw that happen again and again this past year while I was touring with the book and getting invited places to show Keaton films and host them and introduce them, things like that. I mean, I probably spent, I don't know, I maybe went to... 15 or so live screenings of, of Keaton films last year in different places around the country with people who already were fans, with people who had never seen one of his films before, with little kids. In one case, there was a seven-year-old boy in the theater who had never seen a movie on the big screen before. That was his first one, and it was, it was a Keaton film. And they always play, always, always, always. There's laughter, people get it. They don't need context. You know, there isn't that sense that you can sometimes have with 100-year-old movies that somebody needs to stand up and kind of put it in context for, for you before you get it. No, there's just this really direct connection. And so being kind of a part of that legacy and getting to introduce new people to that experience was a really fun part of having the book come out. Are there any particularly um, dangerous stunts you could maybe describe? Like, I feel like the one where the house falls down, he must have just measured it and stood in the right spot. Like, how did how did he do some of those things? Do you yeah. know anything like that in your research? Yeah. I mean, if people are curious about that stunt, which happens in Steamboat Bill Jr., which is maybe my favorite Keaton feature, a, a movie from 1928 that was his last self-produced 
his last independently produced movie, let's say, the last film made by Buster Keaton Studios that was sort of exactly what he wanted it to be, right? Mm. Um, that moment where the house falls down on him was actually a, a sort of crucial moment in his career and in his life. That stunt was one of the most deadly, like you say, that he ever did. He could easily have been crushed by that two-ton house front that they had rigged up to fall down over him. And he also happened to have discovered just the day before that stunt was filmed that he was about to lose his independent production company. The reason it was his last movie is that his producer, his longtime producer, who was also his brother-in-law, uh, had just decided to sell his company and you know sell Keaton's contract out to MGM, make him a contract player rather than an independent film producer. And, uh, and that really turned out to be kind of, for a long time at least, the end of his um, his having any creative power whatsoever. So um, so that was a really dark day for him. And it happened to be the day when, you know, this long planned and designed deadly stunt was going to be filmed. So that's a really dramatic chapter in the book. There's a whole chapter about about Steamboat Bill Jr. that that centers around that stunt. But yeah, I mean, it was it was all practical effects for Keaton. First of all, of course, obviously, there's no CGI in the day, but there were in camera tricks of different kinds that could be done. And with very, very rare exceptions, Keaton never wanted to do that. He didn't want to cheat. And he was proud of the idea that he could do, his body could actually do these amazing things that we see him do on film. And so he would place the camera deliberately so that you saw, okay, this is really happening. It's happening in a real time, in a real space. We're not cheating with the camera. And that's what the falling house stunt was. You know, he was, they marked the place that he had to stand in that little narrow window opening that, you know, that, that saves him from being crushed. They drove two nails into the ground where his two heels were supposed to go, right? And they just had to trust that the measuring was right. <laughs> there were also, it's worth noting, and he talked about this in interviews, at that moment the house front fell on him in Steamboat Bill, there were, I think it was six uh, wind machines, giant engines that had been created to, um, to power aircraft. You know, that's how big the fans were. And it was to simulate the storm going on around him. But they also had to be sure that that didn't blow the house off, you know, slightly off its 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 frame so that it wouldn't fall exactly the way it was supposed to. And the legend about that day, which I think the director actually confirmed, is that, you know, people couldn't watch, that crew members were turning away. And the director himself was hiding out in his tent on set because they didn't want to be there at the moment that the star was killed, if that were to happen. Did he typically come up with these ideas on his own or did he work with a team or where did some of these crazy stunt ideas come from? He definitely had a team. He had a bunch of uh, screenwriters, gag writers, I guess he would have called them because they didn't really have written scripts for silent films for his anyway. Uh, and basically the same uh, cameraman, a really gifted cameraman, a really gifted production designer who was able to design things like that falling house, a guy named Fred Gabori, who worked with him for most of the 1920s. Um, but it, I get the sense that those were all people that were helping him realize his own bizarre visions, you know, because whoever worked with him, and there's often, often credits for different directors on Keaton films. You'll see a silent Keaton film and it'll say, you know, uh, directed by, Cly by Clyde Bruckman, that's it says on the general, but it's indisputably a Buster Keaton film. You know, Clyde Brookman was one of his collaborators, one of his gag writers, who I think he basically gave the credit in order to help Brookman's career, which it did. Um, but if you see how similar all the movies are, it's clear that the vision, the auteur behind them is is Buster Keaton's. There's some examples you mentioned, um, basically like he's doing every stunt live in camera. 
I think an example you said where they might could cheat, I think the famous one where Charlie Chaplin is skating backwards is actually fake. Are you familiar with that one? They put something oh, yeah. in front of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's from that's the one where he plays a floor walker in a in a department store. And now right now I'm not remembering the name of that. The floor walker it might be called. Yeah. Where he's but, ice skate or he's roller yeah. skating and he seems to be almost near this um this big drop off, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think that that was done with a set that was um that was tricked out in some way. For one thing, I, there was not as big a drop off there as there appeared to be. But yeah, there was some there was some kind of in-camera trickery there, I think to make it look more dangerous than it was, which is not to say that Chaplin was not an incredibly accomplished, you know, athletic pantomime artist. He 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 was amazing. Um but that's probably something that Keaton would have have frowned on for his own personal films, though he did admire Chaplin's work a lot. Are there some other things you said a few things already? Anything else that really kind of surprised you during your research about Buster Keaton? I think maybe the, the, some some of the surprising stuff. Well, some of it would have to do with his childhood and with the degree to which he became a star right away. Um, and then stuff about later in his life, the fact that um, that he was as successful on television as he was and, and is as in demand as he was in the 1950s and the early 60s. Uh, I think maybe I had 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 more of a, a sad kind of deflated feeling about the last quarter of his life, because it is true that he never got to be a force behind the camera again, the way he had in the 1920s. And that is sad. That's a real waste of talent, you know, that there were so many movies where he was great in front of the camera after that or TV shows, but no chances for him to really get behind it and, and recognize his vision there. But yeah, I would say the, the, the biggest surprise to me was the length of his life as an entertainer and that it was not the case at all that he had some glory days in the 1920s, but before and after was kind of a nobody. I mean, anytime that he was entertaining people, he was somebody that people wanted to to see and to laugh at. So I think this book originally came out in 2022 as a hardback, but now it's coming out as, as a paperback. I want to move back to writing a little bit. Um, did you have any difficulties like transitioning from writing uh, a series of articles where the subjects are constantly changing to a sole focus, even though it is a little bit more going on, but kind of a sole focus of Buster Keaton for this book? I mean, yeah, writing a book and writing weekly movie criticism are so completely different that it's almost hard to see how the skills translate. I mean, I guess the only thing they have in common is they, you know, they're both writing, they're both sitting down to an empty page and making it have words on it. But I used to get so mad at myself in the course of writing this book about how, how slow the writing seemed to go compared to writing a film review, you know, because working on deadline, I mean, I had the experience all the time, every week, essentially, that you sit down to an empty page and you say, all right, by 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. or whatever it is, this has to be done. It has to be publishable. I have to be able to send it to my editor and put it online. And so the idea of going from zero words to a thousand words in a day um, didn't happen every day, but it, you know, it was something that I could reliably do, right? But oh, the number of days when you sit down to work on a book and you work for six hours and you have 300 more words, right? Or sometimes if it's a day when you're trimming cutting stuff back, you have fewer words than you did when you sat down that morning, you know, and that can really make you feel like you're going crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm sure anybody listening who's, you know, tried to write something long form recognizes that feeling. But uh, it was it was kind of new to me. I had thought of myself as a person who could crank out a thousand words in a day if I needed to. And uh, and sometimes when you're doing a really research heavy nonfiction project that requires a lot of going back and looking up the facts, you know, it's better to go slowly. You don't want to write a thousand words and then realize, oh, they're all based on a false premise of a fact that I researched wrong, you know? So um, adjusting myself to that slower pace was was a really hard part of it. 
When I spoke with uh, Annette Lloyd about um, Harold Lloyd, she had also said that a lot of the work, just where it was so dated, I guess you would say, was actually printed false information and printed wrong over and over and over again. Did you find anything like that? You kind of mentioned wanting to change his, the end of his story a little bit and make it more uh, accurate. Anything else that stood that's just like kind of a known falsity about Buster Keaton? I mean, there's so many in his case, even though other writers have debunked them. I mean, I should say that, you know, I'm, I was not trying to write a, a traditional, straightforward biography. This really is a piece of cultural criticism that is biographical in nature. It's shelved with biographies, and that's fine. You know, if you read it as a biography of Keaton, you would certainly learn stuff about his life. But I wasn't trying to necessarily uncover new information and say, nobody's yet seen this document. There is a new book about him. Uh, that's just called Buster Keaton by by James Curtis. That's a more traditional biography that does that. So yeah, I wasn't trying to dig up new information per se, but there are lots of myths to debunk about him uh, from, I mean, what are some of them? Like people love to say that Houdini, Harry Houdini is the one who nicknamed him Buster because it's a great story. <laughs> it is true that Harry Houdini toured with his parents when he was very small and was a friend of his father. They had a correspondence together. Like Houdini knew Keaton and Keaton admired him and uh, and I'm sure watched his magic tricks with with awe from the wings as a little kid. Uh, but I, the story about him having given him his, his nickname Buster when he was a baby after he fell down a flight of stairs seems to be an invention of of Keaton's publicist in the 1920s that just kind of mm -hmm. got incorporated into the myth and people kept on saying it. So it appears in countless books, but I'm not the first person to debunk it. There is, I think there is one little tiny fact about him that I might have been the first to publish, and so I'll, I'll brag about that. There's a there's a wonderful actress um, named Sybil Seeley, who I have a bit about in the book, who appeared opposite him in some of his, his best short silence. She only was, it was in three of his films that I know of, but she's often credited with being in a fourth. And in the course of my research, watching that movie, which is called The Frozen North, I, I just kept looking at the two women in it who have relatively small parts and thinking, neither one of those is Sybil Seeley. It's just not her, but she's credited in every filmography as being in it. and through, um, you know, corresponding with other Keaton experts and film historians and comparing photographs, I just decided I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I only say it in a footnote, but just say like, that's not Sybil Seeley. I don't know who it is, but it's not uncommon in silent film history that somebody gets miscredited because mm -hmm. credits were not that common, especially for, you know, supporting players in movies. So, um, Anyway, that's that's I guess maybe my one big discovery. Sybil Seeley is not the woman in the frozen north. <laughs> so we'll just do we're coming up on time. We'll just do maybe one or two more. I do want to ask you about the cover. Did you have some say in in the image they chose for the cover? Was that something you recommended? Does it mean something significantly to you where he's so for those who can't see it right now, he's kind of looking at his reflection in the mirror. Uh, thank you for that question, because I love the cover of this book. And uh, and I often feel like part of the reason that this book did pretty well, it was not a bestseller or anything, but I think it, it did better than I expected and the, the publisher expected it to as a first book for a pretty niche audience. Honestly, I think the cover helped sell it because it's gorgeous. So yeah, the cover is based on this this photograph taken of Keaton in his dressing room at MGM sometime in the early 30s. Um, by George Harrell, who was the house photographer at MGM, sort of the glamour photographer. He's known for his really, you know, gorgeous glamour photos of Greta Garbo and people like that. Um, but it's an unusual picture of Keaton because he's not in character. You know, he doesn't have his flat gray hat. He's not doing his, his, his silent film character. He really is just himself looking at himself in a mirror, which is not... He's, he was not the most self-reflective of artists, right? As I was talking about, he didn't really like to conceive of himself as an artist, but it's a moment of him kind of regarding his own image. It's a beautiful photo. 
And uh, the cover of designer, the book designer, whose name is uh, is James Iacobelli, who I don't know personally, um, just took this photo, which was one I had asked them to use. I said, if you can get the rights, I love this photo of him looking in the mirror. But of course, it's a black and white photo. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the book designer just made it into this beautiful kind of blue tinted image that draws attention to his face in the center. And anyway, I think the cover really rules. <laughs> Uh, so if anyone's listening today and they want to maybe follow in the footsteps and be a film critic themselves or maybe write books about film, similar to you asking advice from Ebert, what advice might you pass along to a young novice film critic today? I mean, this this is a hard one because I'm in such a different era than Ebert. You know, he's sitting down at his typewriter in the Chicago Sun-Times newsroom, you know, this flourishing print newspaper and film criticism, I mean, every paper would have had its critic back then, right? And now we're consolidating. The internet has really made made it such that there's just very, very few people in the country making their living off writing film criticism, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it's not to pull the ladder up after me, but I think that even the path that got me here, which was basically being a blogger, you know, having my own independent blog about film that I just wrote for my own amusement, um, is not really sufficient to get people into that chair anymore. But I guess when it comes down to it, I would just have to give the same advice Ebert did is just see all the movies you can and write as much as you can. And if you have to have a blog or a Substack as your calling card, then do that. You know, I think what editors are really looking for when they're hiring any kind of writer is can this person file copy on time, <laughs> file clean copy on time, you know, and do they have something to say and a, and a voice in which to say it. And so, even though there's only just a very, very small space now for professional film criticism on the internet, I think that still has to be your pathway there. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.